This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture for this morning is Matthew 6, verses 5 through 14, or 15. It can be found on page 811 in the Black Pew Bible. Matthew 6, starting in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows that you need what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, today, today we're going to focus, we're going to focus on a few different lessons from our text. Let me introduce myself. I think I forgot to introduce myself at the first service too. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be here next week. (laughs) So I don't want to pray yet. I kind of want to get us situated, and then we're going to approach the throne of God together. So let me do that first. Today, we are going to focus on a few different lessons in our text. And none of the details, none of the instructions that we'll consider can have the effect that they're meant to have unless we get a hold of the key phrase from our text today, our Father. Our Father. That phrase means everything. Here. The Gospel of Matthew has many themes, and one of those themes is the fatherhood of God. God's referred to as Father 44 times in this Gospel alone, and even more pertinent to today's text, he's referenced as Father 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount. So I can't have us gloss over that like it's normal or boring. I can't have us miss that, and neither will the author or our Lord Christ or our Heavenly Father have us miss that. Consider for a moment how all the points and all the purposes of this sermon take on a different nature if they're heard as coming coming from a strong and capable and competent and loving and righteous and good Father. How do we hear the Sermon on the Mount How do we pray to God at all? Do we pray as one petitioning a boss for more vacation time? Maybe sheepishly or timidly? Do you pray to God like he's a distant and cold and disinterested father? 
Do you pray to God like a personless deity or force in the cosmos that you have to appease? Is God just an earpiece where you aim all your expectations and ultimatums? Earthly fathers, let me, let me drop this knowledge bomb. Um, earthly fathers are sinners. Sinners. The best earthly fathers are broken and sinful and selfish. We're plagued with things like laziness and selfishness and entitlement. We're plagued with things like wanting our families to feel sorry for us for how hard we work. We mess it up a lot and we get it wrong all the time. And it's important that you understand that when our fathers fail, when you fail as a father and when your father fails you, it's because we aren't expressing the concept, the reality of fatherness correctly. You see, fathers exist at all because our heavenly father existed first. Fathering and fatherness exist because of our heavenly father. The doctrine of God's fatherhood is essential to our understanding of prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's actually essential to every single aspect of our lives. It's the holiday season right now. And this coming week, many of you will be in the presence of your fathers and you'll be, you'll be in their presence for longer extended periods of time than you might normally. And the fact is, is that we have relationships with those fathers. And the hard truth is that those relationships either tell us the truth about God or they tell us lies about God. And most of the time it's a combination of both. We've had relationships with our dads that have told us lies about who God is and a mixture and a mixture of both. But when we come to passages like this, we see today that we're being invited into something grand and clean and beautiful and pure. We're being invited into our Heavenly Father's presence. Today's passage begins with correction. It begins with instruction. But how different is that instruction if it comes from a tender, all powerful, all loving father instead of an impersonal, uncaring, faraway deity or force in the world. Jesus tells us, or Jesus shows us in John 17 as he prays to his heavenly father. He says, oh, righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is connecting us through his own life, death, and resurrection into the family of God. We get to call God Father. The text we have this morning gives two negative examples and one positive example. There's two prohibitions and one instruction. There are two kind of big don'ts and one big do in our text today. And I'm, I'm going to spend some time unpacking the nature of the negative examples. And then we'll walk quickly through the kind of framework and the beauty of the Lord's Prayer. Most of it anyways. But first, would you all join me as we take a posture of prayer before our Heavenly Father, before we sit underneath His Word? Would you pray with me? Father, 
Father in heaven, my Father, these people's Father, your Father, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Heavenly Father, we long for your holiness. We long for your kingdom. And we ask that you would bring it here now. We long for your will to be accomplished. We long for your will to be accomplished in this place, in this church, in this building, in this morning, in our hearts, on this earth, just like it is in heaven. So Father, would you give us all exactly what we need, all that we need to obey you and to love our neighbors. And we'll be content with that. We ask for your most gracious forgiveness again this morning. Forgive me, Father. Forgive me, Father, for how I trample on your glory and fail and tell lies about you to my own wife and kids when I besearch the holy office of fatherhood. Forgive us for unconfessed sin and convict us of sin so that we may confess it. Protect us from darkness, protect us from evil, protect us from wicked temptations that surround us. Be with us now as we labor to listen to your voice alone and not the voice of any man. Amen. First, the prohibitions. This is the word of God to us this morning. And when you pray, you must not, like, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corner that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Because we're told twice in this short section don't be like them. It's important for us to recognize the core. It's important for us to notice and recognize the center of what we shouldn't be like. We're told here, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the pagans. We're given direct and clear instructions. This is how the hypocrites pray. Don't do that. This is how the Gentiles make a habit of praying. Don't pray like them. We're going we're gonna to spend time unpacking how do we not pray like hypocrites and how do we not pray like Gentiles. So first, how do I not pray like a hypocrite? Jesus' words are direct and helpful. He tells us that the hypocrites love to be seen by others. That's key. Last week, Andrew spelt out what's meant by this particular word, hypocrite, from the ancient world. And first, I want to revisit that concept again because hypocrisy is a theme of this sermon and of the Gospel of Matthew. And we would be served well to understand hypocrisy so that we can recognize it in ourselves, right? Not in other people. Recognize it in ourselves first. We would do well to understand and recognize hypocrisy so that we can see it in ourselves and we can repent of it and turn from it. So let me give you this definition of how to understand hypocrisy in the ancient world. One author writes, 
Hypocrisy is a very important idea for Matthew because it is the great enemy of true righteousness. Pause. That's, that's what we're after here in this section of Matthew, right? We've just been told that you, you, you have to have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. That sounds like a daunting, like tall order. How do we do that? How does that happen? And right here, this author explains that hypocrisy is the enemy of that kind of true, greater righteousness defined as whole person behavior. He goes on, typically, the word hypocrisy refers to someone in our modern day, refers to someone who says one thing, and then that person does the opposite. A hypocrite is one who lives a double life, contrasting their actions with what they might say, their words, such as a politician who takes bribes on the side while running a campaign against corruption. But this is not the sense of hypocrite in Matthew. However, doubleness is a good way to describe hypocrisy in Matthew, but it is doubleness of actions and the inner person or heart, not of words and actions. Let that startle you that morning, or this morning. Let that startle us. Hypocrisy is when you say the right things, and then you do the right things, but you don't have the heart that matches the right things. The depth of hypocrisy that Matthew wants us to see is the politician who says everything right, and does everything right, but he does it for all the wrong reasons. They love something. Hypocrites love something. They love the wrong thing. They love to pray out in the open so that other people can see them. That's what Jesus is exposing. And it is way more than, not, than simply not walking the walk or talking the talk. What he's getting at is something deeper. He's taking aim. He is taking aim right at what we love, right at what stirs affection in our hearts. And he's doing this because you and I are duplicitous in our hearts. He's doing this because this is what we are like. And he says, don't be like that. Don't pray that way. Don't let that happen. Jesus boldly calls out the motives of the hypocrites, which are probably, the hypocrites in this, in this uh, context are probably the scribes and the Pharisees, but he takes pains to name and completely and summarily call out and condemn their motivations, the motivations for their right behavior. That's what hip a hypocrite does. They play a role. They read a script, and some of us are better at, at it than others. Some of us are masters of our craft of hypocrisy. Some of us would win Oscars. Doing all the right things for the praise and approval of the crowds or for our reputation or for our plat platforms on social media. In all these cases, it's performing because we love how good it feels for our righteousness to be seen by other people. And let's not lie, right? After all, we are sitting in church this morning. We, we love that. We love it. It's warm and soothing and comforting and stabilizing to have the praise and approval of other people in our lives. It feels so good 
to be loved and liked and looked up to. It feels, in the beginning, it feels really good to feel better than other people. Being seen, being approved of by our peers, or maybe even better, being approved of by our mentors or our heroes tastes really good as it goes down. And we get new opportunities. Maybe we get connected to a new job or we get recommended for the job that we've always wanted and secretly knew we really deserved. Being loved and praised by men is pretty great. And it makes your life pretty great. And if you live your life to have it at all costs, to have the status that you want, to have the reputation that you really want, if you do acts of charity or kindness or service or righteousness, acts of love so that others see you and admire you, you might find what you're looking for You might get the referral for the corner office job that you want. You might get the promotion that your heart yearns for. You might get the girl or the guy that you believe you deserve and you're just waiting for God to get around to to doing it. You might get everything that you want, but that is all you'll get, Jesus tells us. That's all you'll get. And he says, don't be like that. Listen listen to the words of Jesus. This is a, a summary. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door where it's just you and your heavenly Father and pray. And God who sees in secret will give you rewards that far exceed and definitely outlast anything you can get in this life. Any praise or approval that you're tempted to love and live for, the rewards that Christ, that your heavenly Father is offering you far exceed and outlast anything. Get yourself alone with God and talk to him as a father that loves you. Fathers, fathers in the room, and mothers can apply, apply this as well easily, but fathers in the room, you, you, for a second, imagine your daughter or your son hugging your neck or engaging you energetically in conversation just to get their friends to think highly of them, right? That would probably never happen in a million years. But it also exposes like the broken dynamic of that relationship. It's not supposed to work that way. My oldest daughter and I try to make it, a, make it uh, to coffee and a donut at least once a week. And she begs me, begs me to tell her these made up stories that are a little embarrassing. So I won't say them from the pulpit. That's where she gets her, her the goofiest version of her dad. And then she asks again, and she asks again, she asks again, and I tell her the story again, and a different version, and different scenery, and all these different things over and over and over again. Now imagine her doing that, so the other people at McLean's are impressed by her. It would never happen. That is weird. Right? It's odd. It's disconnected, and it's unnatural. It's not how it's supposed to work. How much would the relationship have to be broken for it to be fake and manufactured like that? But that's how deep our approval-seeking hearts go. And Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't do all the right things and say all the right things, but be betraying the very point and purpose of those right things. Prayer is meant to be communion with the living God of the universe, not a tool to manipulate how people perceive you. 
Prayer is meant to be communion with the living God, not a performance for the admiration of other people in your life or in your family. Listen to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, he says, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Let that sink in for a second. He says, man is at his greatest and highest when he's lowest and on his knees, face to face with the living God. How could we come face to face with God in order to be seen by others? And friends, you can, you can uh, let the tension in your shoulders relax because we all know that the only reason to that question, the only reason that we would do that is that we love it. There's temptation to love that. We just love to be seen by others. Let me give you permission to admit that, to admit that you love to be seen by other people. We're not fooling anybody. I'm not fooling anybody. You're not fooling anybody. I love to be seen by other people. Well, not consciously. I wouldn't say that out loud and like aim to get that. But my heart gets pricked with a temptation towards a certain satisfaction for the praise and admiration of men. Going into a room and closing the door is the way, going into a room and closing the door is the way that you cultivate a pure love for the right audience. Going into a room behind a closed door is where you cultivate the experience of enjoying the presence of God with just you and him alone. That enjoyment doesn't come easily. It has to be worked for. That's the point. Remove the temptation. Remove the distraction. Get on your face when nobody else can see except your heavenly Father. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't love to be seen by others. Love being seen only by me. Your heavenly Father is saying to you today, right now. Prayer in a closed room is a place that you cultivate the enjoyment of God's presence by itself. And if you don't know what that is, find someone who loves to pray and ask them to talk about it for like five minutes, and then you'll get what you're missing. Prayer in a closed room is not, is not the only place that we're instructed to pray. It's not the only place that you experience the presence of God. I want to also exhort us to pray with our kids Pray with our spouses, pray with our friends, pray with our family, pray with people in our church. We have, we have men's gatherings that gather in this building twice a month. The next one is on December 8th. We gather at 6.30 in the morning, some men do, in the, uh, in the library, which is that top floor of our building that kind of overlooks the courtyard. We gather there with a few voices regularly once a month and pray. We ask God to bless this service. We ask the Spirit of God to move in our church. We ask the Spirit of God to do what he did this morning and save our children. And um, there's only a few of us a month, and we'll keep doing that as long as we meet in this building. But that's a place and an opportunity for you to come and connect with others and pray alongside other uh, brothers in this church and even receive prayer in this church. We also have another opportunity to get prayer 
that is every single Sunday during the first service, we have an intercession team, a team of people who are praying on the behalf of all of our members and all the people in our church. And they're over next door in Luther Hall, downstairs in a room, and they are praying that the Spirit of God would move during this service and rescue people, that the Spirit of God would move during this service and convict people, that people would be transformed, that people would become Christians, that we would be overwhelmed and arrested by the goodness and glory of God, and that God would do real powerful work during our Sunday ministries or during our Sunday services and throughout our ministries. At the very least, they pray for that, and they pray for a lot more. And they would invite anybody, anytime, to come join them and uh, lock arms with them as they approach the throne of God and pray for us. Thirdly, Right after I get done, there will be uh, a couple people over here, a couple prayer ministers over here who would love to pray for you, whoever you are, you're who I'm talking to. They'd love to pray for you. They'd love it. Whether or not you need it, whether or not you're sure why, they'd love to pray for you. And we have that every single service. So there's three practical applications to, um, to getting more involved in praying uh, here at our church. And I want you all to know that gathering with other saints where what you're doing is you are, you're intentionally focusing on the, the godness of God, on his bigness, his glory, our dependence on him. We're coming to him to ask him for things. We're coming to him to, to glorify his name. We're coming to him because we know that we're limited and we can't do any of this stuff on our own. Coming together with other saints to do that knits the hearts of saints together in a community and in a church like, like almost nothing else can, in my experience. Um, it's, a place, it's a place where our hearts are joined in petition and in admir- like, like adoration of the living God that's powerful and will, will change you. So come and pray with us with one, of those, with one of those opportunities. The second question I want to ask this morning is, how do I not pray like the Gentiles? The essence of this negative example, I want to say quickly, is a, is a kind of mindlessness and a kind of transactional prayer. Don't pray like the Gentiles either, Jesus says. So we should ask ourselves, what are they doing that we shouldn't do? What are they doing that we should avoid? What's the way? What's the way that they pray that we shouldn't pray? And the answer is, is that they heap up empty phrases and they do it They don't do it for no reason. They do it because they think they'll be heard and they'll impress God or that they'll be able to convince God or persuade God to do something for them. They have a diminished and depraved view of God. They see him as some kind of deity that'll bend his will to theirs if they can be convincing enough, if they can have flowery, flowery enough language. If they, can, if they can say it enough times, they'll be able to twist his arm and get him to do it. And Jesus says, don't be like that. And let me point out as well that right here at this moment, the fact, the simple fact, the sheer fact that Jesus is going to juxtapose, juxtapose how the Gentiles praise and how the Jews should pray is already scandalous in this context. For Jesus to reference the Gentiles as if some of the Jews are behaving this way is already scandalous in and of itself. For Jesus to say, don't be like the Gentiles, was already taboo and a huge faux pas. 
This would have been a tactless, this would have been a tactless comparison for the Jews to hear. And Jesus goes there. He's not subtle. He says, you know that group of people? You know that group of people that you believe that you're better than? Well, you're acting just like them. Don't. Don't act like them. I mean, you, you can hear a dignitary in some fancy outfit kind of gasping with, I never, I would never pray like the Gentiles pray. That's the kind of dramatic moment. Jesus is shoving it in their face and offending them. That's the kind of situation and reaction that he's provoking on purpose. And again, he's sticking the scalpel straight into their hearts. And he's doing that for us too. You can't just not do haughty things to achieve a greater righteousness. You have to not have haughty dispositions either. You can't just treat people with respect officially, but you must have regard and respect for them from the heart. You can't just pray. You have to pray without trying to manipulate God, without trying to get him in your debt. And as we do this, we try to convince God or twist his arm like a child writing a letter to Santa Claus. We think that if we can pray enough or pretend hard enough or sound righteous enough, then he'll finally do what we want him to. Again, my daughter makes an interesting example here. She doesn't, she doesn't heap up empty phrases at me all day so that I won't forget to feed her dinner. We know what she needs. My wife and I don't know much, but we know that our daughter needs food. She doesn't believe that she has to convince us or trick us into believing in the concept of lunch. We know for her, for her to grow and be healthy and happy, she needs to eat meals. And we provide those meals, whether or not she's adept at asking or even being grateful. Your heavenly father knows what you need. The Gentiles prayed to their gods in order to appease them and pacify them and manipulate the situation. It was transactional, and treating our Heavenly Father in a transactional way is pagan and empty and insulting to a Father that loves us. That loves us. God knows what you need before you ask. So when you go to Him in the closet, go with that understanding. Don't go with an Amazon wish list and try to litigate all the reasons that you need things that you don't really need. Don't love being seen by others and don't try to manipulate God with ostentatious language. It doesn't work. And it's an insult to a loving relationship with your father. If you find yourself praying, if you find yourself praying like the hypocrite or praying like the Gentile, the answer's the same. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, there's instructions on how to do things that does portray the greater righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees um, express or demonstrate. And if you, I, don't know, I don't know how you react to failure in your life or conviction in your life, but two uh, common pathways are if you fail to do what you hope to do or what you desire to do or aspire to do, you might white-knuckle it and become more pharisaical and, and even try harder to get God in your debt. Or you might be like someone who throws their hands up and, and just gives up altogether and just kind of sits down in despondency and, give, and gives up. But I want to exhort you all that throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the answer, the answer to places that our heart 
has remaining corruption and, and gunk and, and murkiness, the places that, are, that the, the Spirit of God is kind enough to expose that to us and expose where we are doing this, not just whether or not we are, but the places that we already are, when the Spirit of God does that for us, the answer isn't to quit. Okay? The answer isn't, like when you pray and it's tinged right, or mixed with unhealthy motives, the answer isn't to stop. The answer is to repent. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. But repent. Turn from sin. Thank your heavenly Father for convicting or revealing more places in your heart that he wants to clean. We need the power of the Spirit of God working in us to make us love that secret place with God. And so I'm inviting you and exhorting you. This doesn't work on your own effort. You have to ask him to awaken that and do that for you. But you also have to get in the secret place. So, so then if, if, if we've learned or we've heard just kind of like two places or two examples of how we shouldn't be praying, let's talk about how we should pray. Like how should we approach our Heavenly Father? And I won't get through the, the entire example that Jesus gives with the, the Lord's Prayer, but I'll get through a lot of it. Next week, we're going to focus on Christian forgiveness. So I'm going to leave that one alone kind of to the side so you can be ready for that. And then today, I just kind of want to talk about the overall sweep, the overall kind of like structure of the Lord's Prayer and the beauty of it. And two things that I want to highlight are its order, the order of the prayer, and its comprehensive nature. I want to highlight the order of the prayer and that Jesus doesn't leave anything out for us. So first, its order. This prayer begins Godward. That's important to note. Jesus loves us enough to grab our faces and aim them up right at the beginning. Jesus loves us enough to turn our attention to where it always belongs. Instead of focusing our attention on other people and instead of uh, focusing all of our attention on what we want or think we need, Jesus takes our faces and orients them to the face of the living God correctly and accurately. When you go into that room and shut the door, remember to start here. Start with the understanding that you're approaching your Father, your Heavenly Father. That phrase, if we truly let that sink in, that, that would be a successful Sunday for you. If you can conceive of or understand or experience your Heavenly Father as your Father and not some uh, a tyrannical ruler or boss, if that sank in just a little bit deeper this morning, it would be a massive success. You aren't praying to a monarch or a power-hungry ruler or a sinful and broken person. You're in the presence of the living God, and he invites you to relate to him as a perfect, loving father. You see how Jesus immediately orients us. Calling God Father wasn't as common in ancient Israel. If you look at the Old Testament, it's not nearly as common as it is in the New Testament. But referring to the God of Israel as our Father has defined the Christian church since its genesis. We can't let ourselves get rote or ritualized or lazy or empty in the ways that we use the word father in the church because we can say our father and forget so easily the intense meaning, the deep 
and intense relational commitment that that phrase represents. God's not a failure as a father. He doesn't forget or struggle with sinful and selfish temptations. Our father is giving. He is a giving being at his very core. At the nature of who he is, he is a sharer. That's an official word. He's a sharer. It's part of who he is to give himself away. When you pray, close the door and feel the profound significance of the presence of your heavenly father. Take note, fathers. That's also how you give yourself to your families. The same overflow and giving of yourself to your family at every opportunity is how you imitate our heavenly father. The order of the prayer starts with God and then turns us to our needs, but it begins by expressing value and delight in God's fatherness. Expressing value and delight in God's holiness and value and delight in his will. This phrase, hallowed be your name, is us looking at the holiness of God and saying, yes, more of that. More. God, hallowed be your name here, now, my heart and my attention and everywhere else. Spread it. Share your holiness and your glory and your goodness with other people. Let everyone see it. Our Father in heaven, you are holy and be holy. Radiate your holiness. Project your holiness. May you be seen and delighted in as holy. May your, holy continue, or your holiness continue to spread and radiate and shine forever, everywhere, for all time. It's a phrase of confidence and conviction and delight in God for his godness. It's a cry that God's holiness and goodness be valued rightly and never be diminished or devalued or forgotten. Hallowed be your name. And may all of your will happen. When we enter the secret place with our Heavenly Father, we must be submitted in a posture of humility and delight in his will. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. This is a fundamental orientation for the Christian. It's a fundamental orientation for our souls. If you find yourself today and you can't say your will be done, whatever it is, whatever it is, come up for prayer. Find a friend. Take that in your secret place to God first. Say, Lord, I'm struggling here. I'm afraid of what you're doing. God's fatherness, his holiness, his kingdom, expressing his ruling will, those are fundamental heart orientations for us forever. There are are magnificent creatures even that exist in the spiritual realm whose only job is to sit around and yell about how holy God is all the time, all the time, night and day and day and night. There's something here that we miss most of the time. But in that secret spot is where you cultivate an enjoyment of it, an orientation towards it, a valuing of it. 
Let it sink all the way to the bottom. Jesus told us that eternal life is that we know God and we get to know him as this kind of father. And his reign and his unresisted will and rule is what true believers desire above all things. That's when we're aligned with God's kingdom. Jesus orders us rightly with a deep and weighty top-heavy prayer. Before he moves to our petitions and our needs, getting God as a father, getting God as a holy father, and getting God as a holy father that rules everything is more important than anything else that you need in the world. Anything. It's foundational that we're first oriented upward before we consider others and before we consider ourselves. And Jesus covers all the bases for us here in this prayer. He, he covers physical needs and spiritual needs in this prayer. The prayer has a comprehensive nature to it. It covers everything that a believer needs or could pray for. Many scholars are eager to point out that the phrase daily bread doesn't just mean food. It can be understood in a broader sense as give us every necessity, every necessity for life, every necessity to do the things you've asked us to do. And this kind of confidence that God cares for all the necessities of life is also reinforced later throughout the sermon and throughout Matthew in other texts. To say, give us this day our daily bread is to say, Father, I believe that you know what I need for this day. Help me believe that you are providing every single thing I need right now. Right now. May my heart be content in the security of being your son. May I be content with the material needs in my life that you alone have provided. May my heart, may my heart satisfaction in your provision be full of gratitude. And once you've meditated on God and delighted in him as your father, who's holy, who's reigning with his perfect will, once you've done that, the fact is, is that we will ask for things differently. We'll ask for things differently. Once you've done that, you'll approach him differently. You'll ask with deeper humility. We will grasp or clutch material pleasures or things that we're pretty sure we think we need. We'll grasp those things much differently. And we'll realize that if God doesn't give us something that we think we need, it is because we don't need it. It's because we're mistaken. That's a lot easier to say when you're praying to God for something like a Ferrari. We can all chuckle and go, God's God's not going to give you a Ferrari, bro. Easy. But it's a lot harder when you're praying for something here. When you're praying for God to heal something or change something or reconcile something. It's much more difficult. It's easier when the thing that you think you need is some material blessing that's over the top. It is much harder when what you think you need is something like being understood by your spouse. Or the thing that you think you need is a person who really has wronged you. You need them to get caught and repent. Or when your child is really, really sick. That's when things get real. When injustice goes on and on and on and it doesn't seem to be punished anywhere. 
when the wicked seem to just be operating with full bellies and a roof over their head? What then? What then? And that's the place that our knees, our relationship to our loving Father on our knees is essential. Is essential. You have to cultivate a space, a context in your life where you know what it's like to sit at his knees and grab a hold of them and ask him, what's going on? Get my heart aligned with your will. Help me to believe. Help me to believe. We'll spend time talking more about forgiveness next week, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip over it and just name the last kind of petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is deliverance from evil. Most scholars see verse 13 as one request from two directions. So it's keep us from walking into temptation and then coming from the other direction, also keep evil away from us. They see these two things as as connected. It's kind of a connected one request. This is a a request that we'd remain pure of heart in our devotion to to the Lord. It's a spiritual petition for spiritual protection. Let us not be tempted to anything else but full devotion to you. Keep us from stumbling, Lord. Keep us from stumbling and seeing other things and loving other things more than you and protect us from the onslaught of the enemy and our own flesh and the world. Keep evil that assaults us from having its full effect against us. Again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones sums it up this way. This, This request certainly includes Satan, So it certainly includes the devil. We need to be delivered from him and his wiles. But there's also an evil in our hearts. So we need to be delivered from that and from the evil in the world as well. We need to be delivered from all of it. It is a great request, a comprehensive petition. Now, none of these lessons on praying would be possible without the work of Christ. As we approach, as we walk through many different areas in the Sermon on the Mount that have direct application to where we are right now and changes that need to happen in our behavior and in our heart posture to God, the fact is is that we can't accomplish any of that on our own. You can come back week after week and that'll still be true. It'll still be true. Only the Spirit of God in us can accomplish this uh, greater righteousness that we desire. And we only can have that through the work of Jesus Christ. None of these petitions, none of these prayers are possible, even possible, without the work of Jesus. Romans 8, 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. It's through Christ you get to have God as your father. That's the point. God isn't everybody's father. If you, if you put all of your faith and hope, if you're united with Christ, God is your father. You are welcomed into the household of God in a unique and powerful way. The Apostle Paul, who authored Romans, talks a lot about our adoption in his writings. And Jesus died so that we could die. 
We could be united to him into death, just like we saw this morning in baptism. We could be united with him in death, and he lives that we can be raised and walk with him in newness of life. We have the astounding privilege of calling God our Father because of his work of redemption performed by Christ. It's fitting, it is fitting that we celebrate the table this morning in a powerful way because of how we celebrate baptism this morning. Those two things go hand in hand. The word today only lands, the word today only lands if the gospel is true. So let me, let me be uh, the one to tell you if nobody else has today, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Forgiveness for your sins is offered to you through his life, death, and resurrection now. Now. That's, that's why we proclaim that. We end our services saying that to you again and again and again and again and again. And we also end our services saying it out to the world again and again and again. And we do that through a action. We do that by participating in the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes again. We do that by eating and drinking. The way we take communion at Redeemer is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. Uh, We'll have two stations down here in front of me, one on the right and one on the left. And then we'll also have a station up in the balcony. And then in addition to those, we also have a gluten-free single serve station that's a little bit further over to my left over here, kind of closer to underneath this window. And then we also have those prayer ministers that I already mentioned that would love to pray for anybody for anything at the end of the service. At Redeemer, we welcome anybody to the table who's a Christian, who puts all of their hope and faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't, um, you don't put your faith in Jesus, you're here for other reasons, we're glad you're here. We're really glad you're here. I hope we can be hospitable to you. And we also have prayers in the back of the pew in front of you. If you've never prayed before, that you could maybe pray for the first time or read and consider what it might look like for you to place your faith and hope in Christ. I'm going to pray and thank Christ for his sacrifice. And the servers are going to come forward. So would you all bow your heads with me and pray? Heavenly Father, would you sink down into our guts and our souls the reality that we get to give you, get to call you Father, that we get to have you as our Father? Would we embrace that? with everything we have this morning in deeper ways, in fuller ways? Would we do it for each other? Would we see our brothers and sisters in this morning? Would we help point their faces to you, our Heavenly Father? Spirit of God, would you convict people of sin this morning? Would you comfort the weary? Would you strengthen the lost? Would you strengthen the faith of those who are shaky and faltering, Lord? And Christ, thank you that you climbed onto a cross and shed your blood so that we could die and we could be raised to new life. Fill this place with your presence, I ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward whenever you are ready.